When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Migrating Buns Edition. It's Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. On today's show, Richard Linklater's new movie, Boyhood, was filmed with the same cast over 12 years. It is a testament to beings in time and is being hailed as a masterpiece. Botched is not being hailed as a masterpiece. It's a reality TV show about plastic surgery gone wrong. And finally, Tinder, the hookup site that has done what no one thought possible, appeal to women. Joining me today is Julia Turner. Julia, I can't quite put my finger on it, but you have a certain queenly aura <laughs> today. What am I picking up on something? What's what is it about you? You're going to make me say it, Steve? I'll say what? I'm the new editor of Slate. You're Wait, excuse me, say that again. I'm the new editor in chief of Slate magazine. You... That explains the tiara. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia all of our listeners are going to have a single question on their minds about this, which is uh, when you jailhouse shivved David Plotz, <laughs> did you put it between the fourth and fifth ribs or the third and fourth? <laughs> it, it wasn't that kind of coup. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> it was bloodless. It was all about Eve. So when you all about eve him, did you? <laughs> anyway, congratulations. This is uh, amazing news for everybody. And uh, I'm going to find a free space on your ass and start k- kissing as soon as the show is <laughs> over. And of course, we're joined by Dana Stevens, the still just the film critic. <laughs> the unpromoted <laughs> drab pack mule of Slate Film Criticism. <laughs> You're still in the final car of the train on Snowpiercer. <laughs> But you're, you're, Dana Stevens is the wonderful film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey. Julia, I just want to say I'm very glad that you're still doing the Gab Fest. That was my one moment of being seized by panic when I heard your, <laughs> your great news. Is she going to stop doing the Gab Fest? But thank God you're still staying with us. Of course. I would not trade it for anything. All right. Digging in. Richard Linklater's new and astonishing film follows a boy as he grows up. It doesn't sound like much except Boyhood was filmed over 12 years and with the same cast. So, in fact, you follow along as an actual boy passes from childhood into early manhood. The boy in question is Mason, played by L.R. Coltrane, and it follows his life in Texas, where Linklater himself grew up, as Mason's parents separate, as his mother remarries, and I won't spoil the movie any further, but through his first beard, first girlfriend, etc. His sister Samantha is played by Linklater's true-life daughter. His mother is played wonderfully, I think, by Patricia Arquette, and equally wonderfully, his father is played by Ethan Hawke. Um, but I, I, I must not make this movie sound trite, Dana. This is the last thing that it is. Uh, Linklater who's known for Slacker, Dazed and Confused, and the Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, Sunrise Trilogy. He's always been interested in the dense interconnection between an actor and his role or her role, between improvisation and script, and between 
beings and time and parts and wholes. This movie is being hailed, I think, rightly uh, as his masterpiece. Uh, I never read your reviews, Dana. I always want to hear what you think fresh, and I'm always dying to know what you think, but I'm especially so today. What do you think of this movie? Is it a masterpiece? Um, yeah, I mean, masterpiece is a, it's, it's an awkward word to throw around, and this movie has been so widely praised that I, it, it feels sort of embarrassing to be part of the praise, but I've been waiting to write about this movie for six months. I saw it back in January at Sundance, and it just has such a special... It's almost not a movie. I think it's going to be hard to talk about for that reason, is that you don't really experience the unfolding of its two hours and 40 minutes as a normal narrative movie. And, mm. and I find that sort of hard to explain. It's somewhere in between sort of a family album, right? And, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and some sort of diary of the passage of time. It's sort of contemplative. It kind of unfolds slowly, although I think the time races by when you're in it. And, uh, and it leaves you feeling that you've joined a world, you know, that you've really been sort of generously invited into this world. And I have a lot more to say about that, but I will leave it at that. I love Boyhood, and I think everyone should see it. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, you go into a movie, Julia, and the lights dim, and you're in Plato's cave, and it's just, an, it is so intrinsically an amazing experience to be inside a movie theater and have the screen light up, and things start to happen. And the disappointing fact is always when you become you can measure a movie by when you become reaware of your body and a, a crappy movie. It's within five minutes. You're shifting a little bit, whatever. I mean, I don't know about you. I got well in excess of two hours into this movie before I was aware that I was an embodied being again. I found it captivating. What did you think? Well, I certainly think everybody in the world should see it. I love Richard Linklater's movies. I'm a huge fan of his work and it's a completely unique, unusual project uh, and to see this boy who's a wonderful actor grow up in real time to see and kind of check in episodically on the evolution of his mother and father getting their lives together in various different ways is totally fascinating and wonderful. I found myself wondering, it did not pass all that quickly for me and I did find myself wondering sometimes if this wasn't more of a movie that's interesting because of the stunt of its construction rather than its total execution. Like, I found myself wondering, what if there were 10 movies about growing up that had been made in this way? Would this one be particularly good in terms of the way its story was told, in terms of how different signals and shifts were telegraphed, in terms of the performances? And I found myself speculating that if you were to make 10 movies this way, this one might be in the middle of the pack. Mm. Does that sound ungenerous? Of course, nobody's going to make 10 movies that way. And the titanic nature of the achievement of it is remarkable in and of itself. So I feel um, miserly mm. raising this question. But I felt like some of the performances weren't great. Some of the, you know, because we had to be inserted episodically into, you know, 12 different years of this boy's life, you had to signal shifts uh, in in how to feel about different characters very swiftly and as a result sometimes kind of broadly and clunkily like uh-oh the stepdad pulled up at the liquor store and then sure enough in the next shot like the inevitable happens so not an unmitigated rave over mm. here so the heartless backlash has begun but, but... <laughs> well actually both the things that julia just mentioned are kind of caveats that i mentioned in my review which did not take away from the overall experience of loving the film i mean any any project like this which Julia's right. I mean, it, nobody else would undertake this project, or maybe someone else will try to now. But I think Richard Linklater is a filmmaker who's particularly attuned and has been, Steve, as you said, for his whole career to the kind of questions that this project brings up. But yeah, my caveats did have to do with irregularity in performances. You know, I mean, when you're casting non-professional actors alongside professional actors, which Linklater did, you, you can't be sure that they'll be acting on the same page at all times. And I think Eller Coltrane, who was cast when he was only six or seven years old, incredibly did sort of grow up to be 
an actor who was on the level of Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. Lorelai Linklater, Linklater's daughter, I think is really sweet and charming in the early scenes and is very comfortable on camera. But as she grows up, it does not grow up into an actress. And, you know, the backstory of the film is that she got increasingly tired of the project and asked her father to kill off her character, which mm-hmm. he refused to do because he didn't want things to happen like the sister dying in the movie. He wanted to keep the story more quotidian and more sort of about real life and what happens in most people's lives. Yeah. Uh, I I don't disagree with what Julia said. It's it's of course it's built around a central, I guess you could call it stunt or gimmick. You know, I, it just comes down to whether you think it transcends it or doesn't. It's the movie's kind of in a weird way a hybrid of the Seven Up uh, documentaries made by. Michael Apted. Yeah, Michael Apted. Thank you. And a Richard Linklater film. You can't experience it or judge it as a normal feature film in some way. He absolutely got the serendipity of this kid growing up into the kid he grows up into without giving anything away in the movie. You know, he grows from a kind of, I wouldn't say generic, but he grows from a six-year-old, you know, kind of unformed, a little bit doughy, you know, ectoplasmic little fledgling into a really, I think, captivating, borderline mesmerizing uh, young adolescent boy. And someone who, interestingly, is a kind of alter ego for Richard Linklater. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the rants that he comes up with at the end, which apparently he sort of developed, yeah. you know, along with the director, the stuff about technology. He's sort of this Luddite, you know, he's just, he's, he seems like he's a little bit of a community-minded artist in the way that Richard Linklater is. And yeah. it just, it seems obvious that the two of them may have influenced each other over the process of Yeah, up. but I found this exact particular rants at the end of the film to be somewhat unconvincing. Like, I felt like like Richard Linklater, the, you know, however old he is man, was like popping up in the mouth of this 15-year-old boy to complain about Facebook. I, that was like my least favorite scene was the boy complaining about but Facebook. But apparently that was essentially written by the two of them together based on Eller Coltrane's actual feelings about Facebook. I mean, I guess as a lover of Richard Linklater movies, I always like those slacker moments. There's always some crazy rant. Richard Linklater himself begins the movie Slacker by getting in the back of a cab. Do you remember this? And, and doing this sort of like oh, five-minute yeah. free associative rant to the cab driver. And of course, Slacker is all about sort of successive weirdos through Austin ranting. So I guess I like that part. I like the kind of oddball theory spinning that always happens in a Richard Linklater movie. Oh, and the before movies, of course, are all about two people doing that together. Yeah, and cue the David Brooks column, but I'm going to come out and say it. Well, a thing that I loved about this movie was that it emphasized the degree to which a human being becomes the individual that they are because they're so deeply enmeshed in a, a series, a set of relationships that unconsciously nourish who they are. And those, you know, you couldn't pinpoint in any exact or empirical way what the cause and effect is of the rotten stepdad, the biological father who seems like a deadbeat but turns out to be, you know, a solid presence in this kid's life, the mother who puts herself through school. You couldn't, you know, social science it down to a, a you know, a, a tick and a talk, one follows the other. But 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 holistically, and this is Linkletter's theme, you, you find it in, Seth Stevenson on Slate wrote, a, I thought, a beautiful piece about how this movie is very much a part of a whole, you know, work of, of Linkletter's. Um, you know, he's, he's really concerned about how, in some deep, total, unconscious, holistic way, people individuals as dignified as they are as individuals are inextricably bound up in social and familial circumstances. I thought that was just beautifully portrayed and you couldn't point to any one scene and say, oh, that's a great scene. But it's not constructed that way. Um, no, I know. And I, do, I, feel, I feel mean being anything less than glowing about this movie. But I, you know, I, it did, I did have reservations about parts of it. I mean, one thing that I think rankled me, but that actually is a testament to the power of it, is it also is very 
pointed about how these kids whose dad is super cool but isn't really in their lives all the time and eventually grows into a more responsible father, you know, about just the sheer romance of that compared to their single mom who's holding it down and trying to better herself and getting an education and making some bad decisions in her love lives. And you sort of see the inevitability and tragedy and okayness of all of that. Uh, I thought that was was sort of lovely. Just a sidebar on Patricia Arquette. I really, really hope that she gets some sort of awards nomination or recognition for this performance. She's just superb playing this very fiercely independent and often, you know, quite um, how would you describe it? I mean, she's not always the most appealing mother, right? She's she's kind of like rough on her kids. She makes some poor, very poor parenting decisions in her second two marriages. You know, she has some really low points and yet she's always a character that you sympathize with and root for and she just she just plays it so fully with every fiber of her being. And I, I love love Patricia Arquette in anything, but I feel like this is one of her finest performances. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, the movie is called Boyhood. It's in narrow release right now. It goes wider very soon, I think, next week, and I think it's going to go wider after that. My prediction is this movie does an astonishing amount of business relative to its ambitions. We'll see. Tell us what you think about it. Go see it. It's a remarkable film. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the m- moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week, Steve, is Audible. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital audio information on the Internet. They offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you can play on nearly any device, including whichever one you're using to listen to us right now. And Audible also has a special offer for our listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Um, We've been doing something on the show over the past few months where we gather what we're calling the Culture Gab Fest bucket list. This is the list of books that you must have read to consider yourself a official cultured person. Uh, and we have a nomination this week, I think, from Steve, right? It's uh, inspired by our first topic, the movie Boyhood, which follows the kind of organic boy becoming a man. The classic from English language literature in this vein is the novel by James Joyce, a uh, novella, really, I guess, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. It's the book that he wrote after the short story collection Dubliners, but before he wrote his acknowledged masterpiece, Ulysses. It might therefore get a little bit lost in the shuffle. I don't know, probably not that lost in the shuffle, but it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's it's just a beautiful read. It's where the hyper-modernist Joyce of Ulysses meets up with the lyrical Irish Joyce of Dubliners and forms this this perfect voice, I think, throughout. It's just some of the passages in that book are, are among the most beautiful passages of prose in the English language. And, Julia, we have a particular recording picked out, don't we? Yeah, we have the version read by Jim Norton, who has a lovely Irish lilt in which to hear Joyce's own Irish lilt. Uh, and the recording, I think, is about eight hours, so it's a... It's a sleek filly. You can take it. You can you can fit it on a on a weekend road trip. Um, anyway, uh, the URL again is audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give Audible a try today, and please use our URL so they know you're a Culture Gab Fest listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, Steve. What's next? Oh, uh, we got some reality TV, junk reality TV coming. All right, moving on. America was drunk on physical comeliness, the great Frederick Exley once wrote. And from the evidence of the new e-show, botched, were drunk on schadenfreude and sheer nonsense as well. 
You like that? That's <laughs> good. I pleased the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Botched is a reality TV plastic surgery show. It centers on two surgeons, Terry Dubrow and Paul Nassif, who practice what one calls, quote, revision plastic surgery, unquote. They go in and fix the mistakes of the dubiously motivated and the ambiguously credentialed surgeons who have botched up someone's body. Uh, it would seem to hit the two major notes necessary to the reality genre. It's both a helping of schadenfreude. You see where vanity leads some poor souls and a Frankenstein into a swan feel-good special, I guess, at moments, at least Dana. I have to say, I don't get this show because my Tijuana tummy tuck worked out perfectly. <laughs> you know, so the idea that you need to go back and correct it is... Um, but in all seriousness, how nauseated were you by this uh, television show? Uh, well, okay. Well, Botch, you're right. It has heaping helpings of all kinds of, of recipes for reality television that you don't necessarily always find together in the same show. So it's some mixture of a show like The Swan, which was a plastic surgery makeover show, and then something almost more like keeping up with the Kardashians or something. I'm not well-versed enough to know the closest cognate to this in reality TV world, but something about watching, you know, people with really bad ideas and trashy tastes kind of execute their will. Very wealthy people who can do whatever they want with their bodies kind of making big mistakes. So I guess, yeah, schadenfreude is the emotion that's supposed to be felt. But as I talked about when we did Keeping Up with the Kardashians, I believe in a live show I remember doing the Kardashians, I guess I just don't get the entertainment value of that particular emotion. I'm not trying to rise above it or be on moral high ground or anything. I just really don't see the fun in watching a person's botched plastic surgery be fixed. So this show was was a weird watch for me. But it does have this strange mix of stories in each episode. So it's it's an hour long, way too long, like every reality show with like 500 establishing shots of the medical building where the doctors practice. There's tons of filler in it. But every time there's three stories, basically, and at least in the three of the four existing episodes that I saw, every time one person is rejected who comes to ask for plastic surgery. So that seems to be a narrative the show wants to repeat again and again, that these doctors are not such bottom feeders that they're going to take anybody on. And mm -hmm. so if somebody comes in who has body dysmorphic disorder and admits it straight out, right, somebody comes in who, like the young gay man who's already sort of made himself into this human Ken doll, and he's not having a botched surgery fix. He just wants more on top of what he's already done. They turn him down. So every time they seem to turn somebody down, mm -hmm. then they also have one person who's kind of a freak. <laughs> it's Janice Dickinson, the former supermodel in one episode, who's a veteran of reality TV. She was a judge on America's Next Top Model. And everybody knows who's watched any reality TV, even me, about Janice Dickinson as this sort of, you know, lovable monster of reality TV. So she gets her surgery, which is replacing some 30-year-old silicone implants, but she's treated sort of freakishly. And then there's the nice person. You know, there's somebody who's having plastic surgery for a non-vanity reason because their nose was broken as a child and was never fixed right. Some A person who's just sort of a normal person that you can be happy for as they as they get their their face back that mm -hmm. they used to have. And so I think the show is trying to have all three of those feelings at once. I also just discovered in researching it that both of these doctors are either the husband or the ex-husband of a real housewife on one of the real housewife yeah. shows, <laughs> Amazing, which right. makes you realize that there's this whole interconnected labyrinth of of reality shows out there that sort of feed each other's maw, and that kind of grosses me out. I know. Well, what do you think, Julia? Is there a tincture of humanity that, that, or, or ethical, you know, uh, high standards here? Because it is about correcting what, you know, people of quite low standards have done to someone previously, or is that just having its cake and eating it too? I feel like this is the reality TV machine getting slightly smarter about itself. You know, if 10 years ago there was just this one or celebrity makeover where we were, 
you know, unmitigatedly gawking at people who wanted to, you know, disfigure their bodies with unnecessary surgeries because they were essentially crazy. And we were watching like the sad insanity of people on television for, to my mind, no good reason. This is trying to offer up a more complex bouillabaisse where where there's this mixture of carefully calibrated emotions that Dana suggests. And instead of just purely gawking at the clients, they've given us these heroes in the form of these eminently reasonable plastic surgeons who are really just trying to help you fix your nose so you don't have migraines anymore, but they're not even going to bullshit you about how likely that is, that you might not get the migraines fixed. And, you know, they really want to help Janice Dickinson, but they're concerned about her pain management. Like they somehow found these heroes in these weird, overly tanned L.A. surgeon bros who I had not realized that they were uh, housewife, husband material or ex-husbands or whatever they are. Um, by making them the heroes and by them, by carefully putting them in a position where they are just so reasonable, it makes the thing feel slightly more palatable to watch, you know, and, and obviously plastic surgery is a good idea for a before and after type reality show because it's so visual, not to mention slightly gory. I mean, the surgery scenes are gross, but I found that all very icky because what those eminently reasonable plastic surgeons still do is just take as a given that like, oh yeah, well, you know, modifying getting breast implants, of course, is totally fine, but you're crazy not to change them every 10 years. Like, leaving them in for 30 years, that was your problem, Janice Dickinson. I mean, whatever. People want to do whatever to their body. I'm not really going to judge it, but the the sort of moral, it's a slightly expanded moral universe from the reality show of 10 years ago, but it never gets to to, uh, maybe just don't have plastic surgery, Mm -hmm. which is a moral universe that I live in. Right. Um, Okay, so I I agree with you. I I, I disagree with your whatever, and I agree with your uh, subsequent thought, which is, well, not outrage, but let's get to the outrage, but let's get there philosophically, as it were. D- Dana, um, you know, w- it, what is it about plastic surgery that might offend a certain person's sensibility? Is it that we think that one should develop character in relation to what, you know, God or nature has given you relative to your body and your facial structure? Do we think that to the degree that you modify it, it too ought to exhibit some kind of character, therefore I should do sit-ups instead of getting a tummy tuck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Is that a kind of, in the media age, right, is that is that an anachronistic, Calvinistic, you know, the way one looks ought to have some relationship to one's character or state of grace? Is that just another century speaking through uptight uh, Brooklyn culture critics like you and me? Or or is there, you know, ought we judge it? Uh, ought, ought we judge plastic surgery setting aside the show? I mean, I think it exists along a continuum. I'm not sure that I, I take the uh, whatever my, my classic Brooklyn cultural critic position is supposed to be that plastic surgery is wrong and we're departing from there. I mean, one of the spectrums that it exists on is is gender. And there's a character in, I think, the second or third show who's a male-to-female transgender person who has already done, I think, major surgery, has definitely already done bottom surgery and all that stuff, but basically wants to step back. You know, there's a porn star, too. This 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 woman is a porn star and now wants to kind of step back the size of her breast and merely D and not double D or something and get a more natural looking nose. And so there is some movement toward a, a less changed body. But I think the fact that that person wanted to change her body in the first place kind of exists in a different realm from somebody who just wants to look cuter and, and have perkier tits. Well, it certainly does, but doesn't it kind of complicate the way we all think about plastic surgery? Like, you know, I I feel like in my mind, I've always made the decision between like, well, I would just like to have a different body than the one that I have. 
And then as I've grown older, I've, I've, I've thought, oh, well, then there's the version of plastic surgery, which is just like the f- version of my face that exists in my head is not actually the face that stares me in the mirror. And some people get fixated upon that enough to have Botox or do more things that end up making them look fake and old and weird. But, you know, I th- I, there's sort of those two motives. But, um, you know, the world of trans politics and trans rights forces you to think, okay, well, here's the set of people who feel that they have the, the wrong body for who they are. Uh, and surgery is like a very serious part of this whole human rights movement, which isn't to say that that's the same thing in any way as somebody who feels that they have the wrong nose. But it, I don't know, it muddies the waters of just like heaping scorn upon plastic surgery. It does muddy I think. the waters. And in the case of that particular person, the porn star who wants to step back their looks, I mean, they kind of have both things going on, right? Like there's there's the sense that she was born in the wrong body and then that change was made. And then there's a sense that the body has to look a certain way that porn star bodies are supposed to look, you know? So if we're going to start judging, like where does our, our judgment come in? Maybe that's what makes me uncomfortable with this kind of show is that it presupposes that there's this other strange freakish thing out there that we are going to have a judgmental attitude toward. And the show is kind of dealing out that judgment mm-hmm. in these little portions. I don't know. It just, it, it, it creeps me out that we are assumed to occupy some place on the continuum of judgment. All right. Well, here seems like a good place. Why don't we listen to a clip? And just to set this one up, I believe the clip we're going to listen to is this moment when a woman who's eventually turned down, they refuse to do surgery on her because she does kind of confess that she has a disorder, uh, an obsession with plastic surgery. But her earlier butt implants that she got to sort of give her more of a projecting um, ass have now shifted so that they're, they look like these kind of dinner plates. It's really gross. If you go anywhere on the website to the show, you will see it because it's the gross clip that they use as a teaser. But there's these kind of like rotating discs in her buttocks. <laughs> Immediately after surgery, I noticed there was a problem. I could stick my hand underneath my butt and I could feel them, which was not comfortable. They had dropped and I was, you know, showing my girlfriend. I went to pull the implant up, you know, just underneath my cheek. It just flipped. I knew I needed to have it removed, so I found another doctor to take it out. This whole procedure has affected my life in so many different ways. I don't really look in the mirror at myself anymore because I'm not happy with the way my butt looks. Something I did to myself, so I'm going to have to learn to live with it. I'm probably never going to be able to fix the imperfection. Once you ruin it, you can't go back and fix it. So as it turns out, they send that lady to psychological counseling. They say that they will not operate on her until she's dealt with her her mental problems, but they don't rule out the possibility that they may at some point deal with her migrating buns. The one thing that we should say, though, before we before we close the curtain on Botched, never to return, although I'm suspicious that Dana watched three full episodes. Like, <laughs> usually do. you can kind of get away with two. <laughs> no, absolutely. And she had such an elaborate kind of almost with relish, you know, recounting of each episode. Yeah, damn, can I recount my process, though? It has that thing where it starts automatically as soon as the last one ends, and I happen to be watching it in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. Um, but in any event, the one thing I think you can say for the show, for all that it assumes that you take plastic surgery as a given in the world and doesn't seem to contemplate the option that you would maybe just not change your body and let it age naturally and live with it, it does really take pretty seriously and show how completely screwed up you can become if you go crazy with this and and offer the portraits of people who have their lives ruined by it and their looks ruined by it. And to that end, maybe it's a force for good. I mean, maybe there's a lot of people out there watching it who think they want a nose job or 
butt implants and are like, oh, shit, those butt implants could go up my spine. That's disgusting. I won't get them. And maybe that's to the good. I mean, I I don't watch the teen mom shows, but I think people have talked about and studied how having these very popular portrayals of what happens to teens who become pregnant and become mothers. I think people were at first concerned that it was glamorizing the lives of these teen moms. And in fact, uh, the impact seems to have been the opposite. It really offers a portrait of how grueling it is to be a mom and how grueling it is to be one before you're ready. So maybe mild points for that. And then I say farewell to Botched. <laughs> I think we all do. Okay, well, the TV show is called Botched. It's on the E! Network. Uh, you can check it out if you so desire. But if you have an interesting opinion about plastic surgery, we'd love to hear it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Before we move on to our third segment, I want to remind our listeners about Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program for 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. You can support Slate's journalism and get access to all kinds of goodies and services, unpaginated articles on the site, ad-free podcasts, and uh, for our podcast, a special bonus segment. This week, one listener asked us to recount the elevator version of our career trajectories. Uh, so we'll be doing that in a special Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. To sign up, go to slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, what's topic three? All right, moving on. Tinder is a dating app. It links into your Facebook profile. So as I understand it, it's hard to game it by being anonymous or pretending you're someone you're not. Once you're in its system, it algorithms you up a series of people who are age, gender, and location appropriate, at which point you swipe right if you like them, you swipe left if you don't, and... Once you are linked up and matched with someone, you are off and running. You're able to communicate uh, with one another and uh, do as you see fit going forward. It has been compared to the gay online hookup site Grindr, though its founders and now millions of users say, no, not at all. It's a general purpose dating site. Every single person in this room currently, with one exception, which I'll go into in a second, is is a fully partnered, spousaled or pseudo-spousaled human being. Uh, so our intern, Anna Schechtman, is on Tinder. We've opened her account. We've got her iPhone in our it, possession. She has officially given us permission to yenta her on air. So we can go through these matches, these proposed matches it is suggesting for her, and we can swipe left or right on behalf of the lovely Anna Schechtman. Let's swipe. Are you Let's ready? The power. Okay. I thought being editor of Slate was powerful, but this is a whole new feeling. <laughs> um, all right. Come gather around, team. Okay, so we've got a 31-year-old here. We won't say his name, although you do get just the first name uh, out of respect for these these poor individuals. Let's consider his eligibility for Anna. This is a guy. He's got sunglasses, arms folded, blue-collared shirt standing against some kind of rocky tidal area. I need a prop to know whether she should date him or not. We'll see him with a prop. Okay, let's see if there's any f- additional photos. Hmm, very natted up in a tux, kind of a high-contrast black-and-white Instagram situation. This guy looks like he's trying too hard to be cool. I noped him. He got a nope. All right, here's a young guy, 24. Here he's, like, broing out with some shirtless dudes at the beach. Got a cigarette in the shot. Are we reading his bio? There's Here's a little bio at the bottom. He cooks for a living. Also a volunteer firefighter, one of the most down-to-earth, honest, loyal, and caring people you'll ever meet. Okay, that all sounds good, but he looks like a total club bro. I don't see him and Anna heading enough. Can we nope this guy? Nope. We noped him. All right, well, you are you have some very unforgiving yentas here, Anna. Nobody on this site is good enough for you. We gave all these profiles close scrutiny. Did that, did watching these fogies interact with Tinder, did that approximate the way you do Tinder? 
Yeah, you guys were incredibly generous, I thought. I, I use the app in a really sort of mindless way, almost the way I would play like online solitaire, which <laughs> is to say that I, I just sort of very instinctively start noping and kind of mostly noping for the, for the most part, unless I'm doing something more like what you're doing, which is gathering around with a group of friends, often my sister's involved, and sort of using the app as a sociological study in self-representation, how these guys are um, selling themselves. And often we take a little bit longer with each with each uh, right. suitor. And, and obviously we're looking at it sociologically here, so it's kind of right. fun to scrutinize the postures totally. and the millions. and narrating their lives as well. I mean, my sister's really good at sort of creating little... Uh, bios out of the details you have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I will say about the app that may not have been clear from from that description is the mechanics of it are really fun, like as a sheer <laughs> online user experience. The notion that you're just confronted with somebody's face. I mean, remember that site, Hot or Not, at the very beginning of the internet, like in yeah. 2002, yeah. and it was just like a, a plain white website, like we need some like zither. Take yourself back to like Windows 95, and then just picture like two photos, or maybe it was just one photo. It was one photo in a binary vote. You just like saw a picture of a person and you had to do hot or not. And this is basically hot or not reconfigured as a dating app with this really fun swiping mechanism where as soon as we, with high dudgeon, deem someone too pompous to be worthy of Anna's time, we can just <laughs> swipe them <laughs> And unlike hot or not, you don't know when you're noped, right? You have no idea when someone is viewing your profile or swiping it. Right. So you only know when you are a match with someone, which I think is part of the reason why defenders of the site say that it is not just good for women, but a a sort of good for all potential prospective daters out there, because you don't know when you're being spurned, but you do. The notion of consent is sort of built into the app. Everyone has said, I am interested in talking to this person, and that's the only way that a conversation can be initiated. Having said that, consent is determined on the basis of Basically, looks for the most part. So there's that's so it does resemble Grinder to that extent. Does Grinder have pictures? Grinder definitely has pictures. <laughs> why, why do you think Grinder is made up of like people's prose poems? That was that was the cutest Dana Stevens moment of I all maybe time. Maybe it was like Craigslist, like meet yeah. me behind the dumpster. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit of that too. The thing that's interesting about. Grinder and Tinder is that they are location specific, so you can know exactly Grinder. I mean, more specifically, you can know if someone is like, you know, 105 feet away from you, or as Tinder, I think, just gives it in terms of miles. This person is within a mile, two miles away, and so there is this sort of pretense or allusion to a, a, a quickie or a rendezvous, like an immediate rendezvous. But I'm not actually sure, based on just the way I know most of my friends use it, gay or straight. Tinder seems to be for dating more than for hookup. Right. And also I'll chime in as a fogey, but it seems to me that to accuse the app of being shallow misses the mark because it's really a semiotics of self-presentation, right? You're getting inside what someone thinks about themselves, whether or not the photograph, by the way, photographs can lie. I mean, but, but there's a way in which they can't lie. The person might or might not be as nice looking as they appear in the photograph, but they have chosen a mode of self-presentation, which is extremely revealing. And look, you're always going to see someone first and then you're 99% of the time and, and you build upon something that's immediate and instinctive and it obviously goes someplace completely different or it doesn't. But nothing about it on its face offends this old fogey. But, and I have to ask you a question, which is you did say defenders of the site 
Let's get into that a little bit. Some people do feel like it needs to be defended against what precisely? And it's more than just the shallowness of it, right? Yeah. Well, also, I just had one other thought, too, about the so-called semiotics of Tinder, is that a friend of mine recently told me, I think maybe in part to flatter me, that he has noticed that girls doing crossword puzzles on Tinder is a, is a sign of, I'm a smart girl. That's the cue for a smart chick. <laughs> um, whereas girls riding camels on Tinder, which for a while was, I guess, some sort of trending trope, signaled, I like rich dudes. So, <laughs> so there is, a, I think there is a, a field I of study here. I date only Saudi millionaires. <laughs> there, there, is a, there is a field of study for sure. You have to put yourself out there a lot on those sites. So we had, sadly, not that startling news out of Silicon Valley a couple weeks ago, where one of the founding members of Tinder, and there's some debate about whether she can really be counted as a founder, uh, who has since left, has sued the company for sexual harassment uh, and, you know, in- included in the suit are a series of totally disgusting, piggish text messages that include sexism, racism, homophobia, and some other really charming traits. Um, and she accuses this guy of sexual harassment, accuses the company of not properly recognizing her contributions as a real founder, um, and then says when she tried to escalate uh, her concerns about the behavior of this executive to the CEO, he dismissed her claims and called her dramatic, and then she was ousted from the company. So, um, you know, the suit hasn't been resolved. It was filed, but it, it did sort of get heaped onto the pile of isn't the culture of Silicon Valley disgusting? Isn't the, you know, the bro, the bro grammar culture totally out of hand? It's sort of gotten slotted in there and it suddenly raises questions about, wow, this actually fairly woman-friendly app has arisen out of apparently what sounds like uh, a possibly very woman-unfriendly work environment. So I don't know if that co- should complicate all of our feelings about this swiping service or, or not. I think it's a really interesting question. But, you know, funnily enough, it's a question that confronts people in a more slightly more buried way with Facebook. I mean, Facebook was started by Zuckerberg at Harvard as a kind of demeaning rate women. Very hot or not style. It was a hot or not and kind of demeaning rate women website. And, you know, I think if we ask, if we need to peer into the character of the founders of platforms that turn out to be kind of virtual panaceas in many ways, we're going to get very confused about how we use a lot of technology in the same way if you peer into the soul of an author of a book you admire, it might turn you off of Anna Karenina or, or Middlemarch. You know, it, maybe we just have to disconnect them completely. If women have found a way to use this in a way that enhances their lives and doesn't abridge their dignity, I think maybe we just have to accept, you know, I mean, look, I can't I can't convince anyone to to patronize a business that's run by and profiting a creep. I mean, there are plenty of, believe me, corporate businesses I won't go near simply because of the nature of the founder. On the other hand, I mean, you know, it is what it is. It's kind of a generic platform. It's a bunch of bits and bytes, and it happens to work to your benefit. This other situation will play out as it plays out. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, repressed material on dating sites. And if the sort of (laughs) misogyny of the founders is something else that we're all repressing in order to go about using it, that that strikes me as not... Um, right. If you already have to ignore all the harassing emails in your inbox, right. maybe, and, and all of the all of the nopes, maybe you can ignore the creeps who started the thing, too. Yeah. And for the sake of everyone's dating success, I would probably advise repressing it because I tried to initiate a conversation with someone on Tinder about this very question, and he stopped talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, the dating site is called Tinder. It's not a site. It's an app. Steve, you're a fogey. Um <laughs> I assume probably a lot of people who listen to our show have used it. We'd be curious to hear some anecdotage 
go to our website at facebook.com slash culturefest. Swipe right, baby. Um, Anna, thank you so so much for letting us spring this segment on you and letting us yenta you on air. It is unbelievably, sadly, your last day as intern. It is. Sniff, sniff. Oh. Yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed that this was the segment that I was brought on for, but I, mean, <laughs> I, I think that's okay. I'll stand by it. Given all the high culture events that you have encouraged us to go to, the futurism exhibit, etc., I think you're forgiven for going out on a dating app. Yeah, you're responsible for us talking about textiles, futurism, and the 9-11 Museum, so I, let that be part of your legacy as well. Mm-hmm. And I do crossword puzzles, so that means something, yeah, it right? Means you're smart. smart. I'm a smart girl. <laughs> <laughs> but do you do them on a camel? <laughs> Uh, it has been a great experience getting to know you and having you as part of the show. Can you please stay and endorse today? I'd love to, yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, Dana, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse. What do you have? This week, I'm going to endorse a new, relatively new podcast called You Must Remember This that's about film history and Hollywood, classic Hollywood history. It's narrated and produced and created by Karina Longworth, who used to be the film critic for the LA Weekly or one of their film critics and editors. Before that, she was a film blogger in New York. I've been following her writing for a while and have always found her an interesting voice on film. And I just love what she's doing with this podcast. It's still sort of in beta. There's only about nine chapters so far, and she's sort of figuring out how long it's going to be, what the form's going to be like, will there be interviews... But it's really fun to watch it take shape. So she has she's had um, episodes on Frances Farmer, the, uh, the Hollywood star who famously went crazy and had to be institutionalized. A wonderful episode on Judy Garland and a two-part episode on the loves of Howard Hughes. So it's all sort of, you know, scandals of, of, of old Hollywood kind of stuff and beautifully produced with lots of film clips and music clips worked in. So um, try subscribing to it on iTunes and see what you think. You must remember this with Karina Longworth. Well, that sounds very cool. Julia, what do you have? Well, I have rediscovered something that I was not in love with the first time around. I think we talked about the HBO show Veep, the comedy about Julia Louis-Dreyfus being the vice president when it first premiered. And then we've, you know, in our way, ignored it for the subsequent seasons. Um, And I never liked it that much. My husband's always been a very big fan of it. I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But I felt like all the characters were galoots and I was sort of rooting against them all. And they were all so petty and I just couldn't get with it. But then in a flurry of catching up over the weekend, I watched this most recent season, and somehow the show seems to have evolved, and the cretinous characters that bothered me in season one have all become, like, fully realized cretins with hearts. They're still horrible people, but they're somehow horrible people that I find it easier to root for a little bit, and I find the show slightly less... Uh, devoid of of soul and happiness. Um, So I recommend uh, the season of Veep that recently concluded. Uh, It's just really funny and and sweet and rootable. I want to check it out. I really do. Um, All right, Anna, what do you have? So I'm going to endorse an online column of the actually print literary magazine, The American Reader. That's a fairly new magazine. But they have this columnist, Michael Reed Roberts, who's doing something... So it's probably higher praise than I wish to bestow on it, but it reminds me, his column reminds me a little bit of William Sapphire's On Language column for the New York Times Magazine, except it's sort of for the digital age. He writes a lot about sort of the grammar of online writing. He has recent essays on the grammar of clickbait and the use of the typo. His writing isn't as sort of tight and glorious as Sapphire's, but no one's is. But I really, I've just been really enjoying it. It's very funny and also 
internet inflected in general. So there are so many fun uh, internet neologisms too. It's a good that's a good idea for a yeah. specific beat for a language column for sure. It's in the American Reader. It's on. It's offered online. It's by Michael Reed Roberts, and it's a column called Life Sentences, and that gives you a bit of a sense of his wit. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So this. Dana, you really you brought the bar so far down for endorsing something that almost nobody listening to the show is with my, actually or could possibly With my Mexican experience. pyramid tour guide? Yes, one specific tour guide in Guanajuato, oh, Mexico. I miss, I miss this one. <laughs> Whose phone is probably ringing off the hook right now as we speak. <laughs> right off the hook, yeah. Um, so uh, there's no way I can top that. But uh, I wanted – so I'm endorsing a, a kind of a experience that one can have other places than – the specific place that I'll then endorse as well. But for my wife's birthday, I uh, gave her a bunch of things, sort of a surprise experiential birthday, one of which, uh, one experience of which was getting a his and hers massage, which I had never done before and was exactly the kind of thing I never thought I would do. But as my wife and I appear to be going through life and marriage parallel to one another and in near complete silence but with a degree of sustaining intimacy it turned out to be a lovely metaphor for our relationship and it <laughs> audibly snorted at my description of my love for my wife i don't care that you're the boss i'm sure your wife snorted too <laughs> thank you anyway i thought it was kind of a great experience in a weird way it, it was it's so the bachelor in some ways you know penultimate episode of The Bachelor, but it was, I thought, just kind of a cool... So you're endorsing getting his and hers massages. With or your... his and his, or hers and hers, or us and us question massages. mark and question mark, or whatever. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've never done it before. I don't have massages very often, but it was something like, you know... I have always wondered about it. I've never done it, and I can't... It doesn't seem that appealing to me. I know. Because, it... like, why... I mean, it's sort of the same thing you say, said about the movies with Boyhood, where... You want to just kind of, I mean, obviously it's all about your body, but you want to kind of not be cognizant of anything while it's happening. So how does it help you that there's like someone you love in the room having a similar experience? I think, look, you do it at a certain point in your relationship. Maybe, you know, five minutes after you met someone on Tinder, it wouldn't be the first thing that you did. But here's my here's my pitch for it, which is, you know, what would you do if you were you know, a married person and you went and had an experience and you really liked the experience? You sort of pop up from it and you say, hey, I just did this thing. It was kind of amazing. And you describe it. You know, I was totally unconscious during the experience of the fact that my spouse was parallel sitting right next to me getting the same experience. But at the end of it, there was something really lovely about like what I like about it was you both had the same experience at the end of the experience. You don't need to talk about it with one another. You just sort of had the same thing. It was really nice. But the thing that I really want to endorse, because of course this is a silly thing, the his and hers massage, is Hudson, New York, where I live, gets a lot of things wrong, even though it's a lot of hype is thrown at it. It's it's gotten this one thing absolutely right, which is this spa on the main street of Hudson called Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I. Absolutely everything about the aesthetic of the of the spa is done beautifully right. It's just tasteful, exquisite, understated. It's just a lovely place. Highly recommended. All right. It didn't hurt, by the way, that the masseuse, as she was exiting the room, said, love your podcast. <laughs> Should I add that? She, so she massages your ego as well. Does she say that to all the podcasters? Well, I think what she does is probably Googles you and she's like, I love your... It's just that everyone in Hudson, New York has a podcast. You can just assume. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, I love your shoes. Yeah. Wow. That's more than I want to contemplate. All right. Well, 
Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, thank you so much for being a great intern. Thank you, guys. It's really been a total joy. Great, great luck to you uh, at Yale, and if you ever want to throw academia over, come on back to Slate. Yeah, I'll see you in like six months. All right, well, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Boss lady. Uh, Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Julia. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Oh